Well, it's like a tour guide, like one of the biggest attractions for people to become tour guides is, is that, you know, you meet a lot of people of the, you know, that you can make out with, you know, it's like, you know, it, their kind of tour guides are known for being kind of like people that sleep around a lot, you know, because they have, you know, access to lots of people who are on vacation and are drunk all the time and just want to make out with locals. Okay, that's, so, an, that's a hidden tip. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, if you ever really like, feel like you, you need some love and become a tour guide. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a good end. But I, I actually wasn't interested in that. I was actually, you know odd against the grain in that sense as well because uh, I was actually quite awkward around women myself so I, I was never like overly successful with with girls because yeah. <laughs> I was kind of a, a, a nerdy bookworm who was into music and like alternative things you know so I was actually into touring because I really liked it meeting people and learning history in new places and stuff and so uh so I, I actually had more of a genuine concern for people um enjoyment of the trip which i think worked well in terms of when i did meet carolyn you know i guess that's what carolyn caught was like this guy is genuine this guy this guy is not like trying to impress anybody or anyone and just being his himself right exactly and it's interesting because on this trip i think there's like 20 people max that could be on the bus and there's 18 women and two guys and one of the guys was with his girlfriend and the other guy was this really nice guy from australia who was just like a nice, easygoing guy. He wasn't like trying to hit on anybody. He just was wanting to have a nice trip. Enjoying so like so if you're like a single woman, you're like, who, who are my available dudes here? Garth from Australia, he was just like, I don't really care. And then you got Phil, the tour guide. So I can imagine like potentially all 18 of us women were like, Phil, you know, you're available. And honestly though, like as you observe someone being a tour guide, um, it's really a unique collection of skills in terms of like really good social skills, um, managing people, you know, making each person feel valued, you know, in a group of 20. You can't just like hang out with like one person or a couple of people. You can't get clicky. You know, you need to relay information. People want to learn something about the country. You want it to be fun. You want it to feel easygoing and make it look effortless. You know, so like really being a good tour guide is a real art. You know, it's an art and a science, I would say. So, like, just observing him, I'm like, wow, he's really smart. You know, he knows so much about not just, like, you know, the sound bites, but really, like, in-depth knowledge about the history, the culture, the people, um, why things are the way they are, you know, and the mythology, the fun stories of Irish folklore. He really made you, like, you know, leprechauns, they are real, and they are around us all the time. You know, you really are, you know... This is for real. So he's a good storyteller. Oh, he's a master raconteur. Oh. I tell you, the, t the story time on the bus was like guaranteed like attention. Like as soon as I would start telling like a folk tale, just you could hear a pin drop mm -hmm. on the bus. And wow. people were just like... And they kind of got to know the, the cues for me leading into a story. So you could just like hear people winding down, getting ready to shut up so they could hear it. You know, <laughs> it was just, it was always sort of amazed me how into these stories people got. Yeah. You know? It was really fun. It was really kind of, I mean, the whole like, kind of magic of Ireland that, that was for real. It was all brought to life by an expert tour guide.
<laughs> so uh, so now now that you are uh, in the travel tour with him um you guys started talking right uh, tell me about that like how, how what was the like conversation what, what what happened when you were in tour with him okay so i was you know observing this cool guy doing his tour guiding thing and um and i was just trying to i i thought i i i kind of like him you know but i figured all these other women probably like him too Anyway, so I was trying to ask him intelligent questions. I'm trying to impress him with my intellect. And um, and so, yeah, that's all good. But then, of course, it came down to some Guinness one night. And uh, we're all in a bar, and there's a bunch of Guinness going around. And um, we're all going back to the hostel. And there was, like, a park across the street. And I had gone into the park to, like, um, just... Not pass out, but um, <laughs> but just kind of just enjoy the evening. So it was a beautiful night, big starry sky, and um, I heard someone coming into the park, and I was saying this hello, and I'm like, oh crap, there's a yeah. guy coming in. But I knew that was Phil's voice. I should preface this though, like, cause like, um, like, cause I was, I did tend to be more of a caring tour guide, <laughs> and uh, so I actually really was looking out for people's well-being a lot of time. And like, people come to Ireland and. People have this impression that Ireland is this huge drinking place and it actually really, I mean, it, it does, there is a lot of drinking now, but it's not actually the main thing. Um, people go to Ireland and they drink a lot because they have this impression and then they have this self-fulfilling idea. Yeah. But actually, most Irish people don't really actually drink any more than, say, anyone in the U.S. or anywhere else in Europe, I don't think, you know. Uh, but it's just gotten this sort of thing, but like people end up on tours drinking to excess and so oftentimes i would be like you know worried about people you know getting lost on the way back to the hostel and uh, i would invariably do a walk around wherever town we were in to and try and round up the lost people of the stragglers just to make sure everyone made it back to the hostel you know for the night and um you know i do these water runs sometimes you know I'd see someone, I'm like, you know, they probably could do with some water, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, diluted. So I knew that Carolyn had gone somewhere outside, and I figured, you know, it was this place across the street with a lawn, and I was like, maybe she's gone in there just to lie down or <laughs> pass out or whatever, you know? So I was like, I'll bring her some water, yeah. and then you can continue on there. So yeah, so I hear him coming in. And I recognized his voice. I'm like, and he goes, oh, I brought you a glass of water. Would you like them? I'm like, oh, yes, I would love that. Thank you. He's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm looking at the stars. I said, you know, last summer I was in Australia on the state. And this summer I'm here. And I, I know this is not a normal life. This is a very special time. I'm really, really thankful. So he said, can I, can I join you? So I said, sure. So we're just talking about looking at the stars and talking about philosophy and physics and random topics that you do and then we had our first kiss oh. yeah so dare i say maybe my intellect did win him over it did yeah yeah and then the tour ends and we decided to meet up at trinity college at the library and um we hung out and enjoyed a really nice day together so i figured this is where the story ends you know mm. and um no he's like let's meet up again and we met in london like six weeks later, and did not stay in contact at all in between. Like nothing. Oh, wow. Just said show up. Basically show set up. a time and a date and a place. Hyde Park Hostel, 12 noon, August 20th. 
And at that time, the texting, like... No, I didn't have a cell phone. It did exist, but, like, she didn't have a phone, and... And we had email, but we weren't emailing each other. There was not this hyper sense of communication. I see. So you were just, like, trusting each other's words. We were kind of following on Sleepless in Seattle vibe of, like, show up at the Empire State Building on the certain day. And I was hedging, I was protecting myself because I picked a date because I was flying out of London, like, say, that Tuesday. And so I knew I had to be in London that weekend before. So if the guy doesn't show up, you know, I, I had to be there anyway. Yeah. And I'll still have a good time. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to, like, totally plan my life around this guy. You know, I've, I've known him for, like, six days at this point. Yeah. You know? And holiday romances aren't known to have the best longevity. <laughs> I was thinking like not quite that I was a bit more uh, op optimistic because I really liked her like because I, I remember after a talk that night and I'd found it very interesting because I'd been so used to talking to like people on tours you know you know whoever was on it but they're usually more of your basic Irish questions where they ask you very obvious things and they talk about themselves and but Karen was quite different because he was interested in your more deeper subjects and like things that had a larger scope in the you know in terms of humanity <laughs> you know uh, existentialism in a, in a sense I and mean, we kind of had touched on all those in a fairly short period of time just talking that night i remember thinking this is kind of great like i really like having this person that i can talk to at, at this level and he's interested in so many things and she's been you know traveled widely and she's got this interesting background in, in nursing and you know, from another country, like Milwaukee, which yeah. seemed very, like, like exotic, very exotic to me, you know? Milwaukee. <laughs> you know, I, I had no idea that it was, like, this Midwestern Western place, you know? Yeah. But I, I, in my head, it was, like, New York City or something, you know? Yeah. And um, so, anyway, this was all very exciting to me. And uh, so I, I, I had a brother, Martin, who was in Australia, who we talked about earlier briefly. Um, and he was still kind of living a punk rocker lifestyle in London in the late 90s and he had bought an old sort of uh, canal barge and was living on this sort of wrecked canal barge and uh, I would occasionally go over with my tools because I was building furniture and stuff and I would help him work on projects on his barge and uh, so I had a place to stay in London you know, so I was like, well, you know, I'll go over, it's a bit of a risk, you know, maybe this girl doesn't show up, but at least I've got, like, I can have a weekend with my brother on his barge. So you guys were not, like, in, like, you guys wanted to meet, but at the same time, you guys were not, like, desperate about it, you guys were, like, yeah. chill about it, you guys, like, yeah, if it happens, okay. happens, if it yeah, doesn't, pragmatic. that's awesome. Because I think we weren't, like, we weren't, like, 20-year-olds, you know, we're both, like, I'm in my you know, later 20s. And so, you know, you get to that age where you're starting to kind of really realize who you are at that point and you're you're a little less fickle, you're, you're a little less into the sort of one-night stand kind of thing, you know. Uh, you're maybe looking for a more fulfilling experience or, a, you know, a better person to share your life with. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm actually getting to that point. You have. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it's like, you know, that's that's kind of where we both were. And like, and I think we both were also fine being on our own. Like, I think I had sort of independently decided that, you know, if I never meet someone. I can still have a great life with music and friends and travel and my interests are very fulfilling. And I, I don't really need my life to be dependent on somebody else, you know? And 
Hopefully I'll have the occasional hookup, you know, yeah, why not? <laughs> just to satisfy the human drive, you know. But, uh, you know, my, my life will not be bad if I don't meet up with someone. So I was actually quite content with being on my own for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And I think Carolyn was also in a sort of similar mindset. Yeah, I was, I was like, because a lot of like, yeah. again, like going back to the very beginning of this conversation of like thinking that like when I... I felt like there's more of a predictable path, say, in my life that, like, you know, high school, college, get a job, get married, make babies. But I was already into my 30s now. And, you know, the married and babies side of this equation, and even, like, relationships hadn't gone the greatest. You know, so I'm like, I was like, Phil, I was like, fine. You know, I'm, I had met, I had seen good role models of single women that had stayed single their whole lives and had very fulfilling, great community, great friends. And I, so I, it was great. I had seen an, an alternate way of looking at the world, mm. you know? And um, I was like, yeah, if I don't meet someone, I'm not going to change the person I am. I'm not going to subjugate myself. If I, can, if I happen to meet someone that compliments me and loves me for the person I am, great. Yeah. But I feel like at this point, this might be really not going to happen. Yeah. And that's totally fine. Because yeah, I'm, I'm just going to do my thing. I think we both sort of discovered sort of self-love at that point, you know? Like we sort of discovered, you know, realized our own self-worth mm-hmm. maybe at this stage, you know? They always say you have to like love yourself the most before you can ever love anybody else. You have to, you can't look for someone else to define you or complete you or whatever. It's, it starts with you, 100% you. Yeah, and yeah, the self-love and like you are complete. Just yeah. having that that like uh, ideology can can go long ways. Yeah. So I want I want so now I want to bridge the gap. Like so you 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 did go to London, right, to meet yeah. her? Tell oh. tell us about that. Yeah, so we went. I went to London. Uh, I actually did a little work on my brother's boat while I was there, which is a, kind of a funny story because back then I would like hop on a plane or. I'd maybe do a, a ferry train combo, but I remember like just in, in stark contrast to the conditions of flight now, I would literally take on a very loose bag with saws and chisels and hammers hanging off of it, you know, <laughs> really sharp implements. Like, Don't tell me that that's how you went and uh, met, like met Walking her. onto the plane with this, like literally a saw hanging out of it, putting it in the overhead, you know, and like telling people, I'll oh, be careful that there's like a, there's like a, you know, a chisel in that part. Don't cut yourself, you know, like now you could just never do that, you know. Yeah, that's, that's scary even to think about like, what, yeah. what is this guy going to like open up the plane? Yeah, yeah. I literally like had a circular saw in there once on the oh plane, you know, like and nobody batted an eyelid at me. They just let me walk right on around. I'm like literally holding a circular saw. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and um, yeah. yeah, but anyway, so I, I, I went met my brother and him Steam living this sort of like punk rock lifestyle. He had like a whole bunch of friends that he would party with regularly. And so we were all at some local bar and then the, this all went back to the barge and went on to the, the, the small hours of the night and he had previously the day before had told me he would give me a ride to the hostel because he actually was a motorbike dispatch guy at the time so he like basically delivered packages around the city mm-hmm. on his motorbike so he knew the city really well mm-hmm. and um, so he was like oh yeah totally I'll give you a give you a ride on the back of the bike and you can go meet this girl so like in the midst of all the alcohol and wherever else he was doing that night he completely forgot about this you know and i had no idea 
how long it was going to take to get there because I don't know the lines and outs of London traffic as, as well as he did. So I assumed that he was keeping track of time and of course he wasn't being Irish, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which I should have known going into this, you know, but also being Irish, didn't think about it, you know. And, uh, <laughs> so it was a double whammy, really. It was both her faults. And um, so like, it's kind of getting close to the time I meet her. And I'm like, you know, should we be getting going? And he's like, going where? And I was like, you're going to give me a ride to meet this girl? And he's like, oh, no way. I totally forgot about that. We're never going to make it. And I was like, you're going to make it. You know, yeah. get on that bike. And we're just, I don't care what laws you have to break. Just get me there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so we both jump in. We're both really hungover as well. Like, it's like, we're just like you know, barely able to function at this point, you know? And uh, so I ended up getting there about half an hour late. Uh, and that was with, you know, driving down one-way streets and going on sidewalks and like, you know, making people jump out of the way and stuff. And yeah, it really was. It was just like that. And I was like hanging on for dear life on the back of this like, you know, you know, rickety motorbike in, in, in London traffic, you know, where everyone's sort of crossing each other and doing stuff. And uh, anyway, I got there eventually and, and Carolyn had, uh, you know, been very graceful and had given given me extra time. <laughs> I had I had buff I had budgeted in like a, so it's twelve noon we were supposed to meet. And I had knowing that the Irish are not very good about being on time, I give them to one o'clock. Because I was not gonna waste my whole day sitting around waiting for some guy. Yeah. You know, like he gets to one o'clock. I didn't know if he was like flying in that morning. If, you know, you get delayed on the tube coming from Heathrow to central London. You just don't know. So I'm like, okay, I'll give him some wiggle room here. Yeah. But one o'clock, man, I'm out of here. Yeah. So all of a sudden I hear like this motorcycle coming down from the right side. And Phil had a very a distinctive orange Adidas jacket. So he had like the black stripes on this orange jacket. It's very cool. And I'm like, that looks like Phil's jacket, but why would he be on the back of a motorcycle? Because I thought he'd be taking the subway in, and he'd be coming in from the left. So he pulls up in front of the hostel, and he pulls off his helmet, and he's just like ashen. He's like sweaty. He's kind of white. He's colorless. I'm like, what the heck just happened, man? Yeah. Well, I think it's this combination of his death-defying ride through London and being hungover. Uh -huh. So um, thankfully, that's the important part. He showed up. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys met, and then. Um, yeah, we had a lovely day. Like we walked around the city. We got food. Went to the British Museum. Museum. And we had a picnic in Regent's Park. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. So we had a great weekend. So I figure that's where the story ends, right? You had a nice time. Yeah, we ended up staying at my brother's barge for a night or two. It was, yeah. That was really fun, and so she got to meet my brother, and you know, we hung out around that area stuff that was it was good fun wasn't it yeah it was great so i figured then the story ends he goes oh you know what i was planning on going to chicago for new year's eve this year because uh, i had a friend who he's from chicago and milwaukee is like a two-hour train ride just north of chicago he's like i come up and visit you i'm like well if you're in the neighborhood you've already come across an ocean you might as well come up and visit me. Well, that was all a lie. Yeah. He just made that up. Yeah, I wasn't planning on it at all. I just knew somebody. Like, I had, I did actually have no. a friend from Chicago, yeah. but I didn't want to be so, like, pushy to like, say, 
I really want to just come visit you because I really like you. So yeah. I was like, I need another in. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be there anyway. So I could be an easy, you know, tag on if you're okay with that. Do you know? The things that you do for love. Well, that's the thing. You're still, everyone's like in the early stages of relationships. You're still kind of protecting yourself. You know, you're like, how much do I want to put myself out there? You know, this is all in the fun, easygoing, see what happens in the world kind of vibe, you know? But I think a few days in London, you know, around my brother's barge, that really kind of helped cement something. And I think we both really sort of yeah. clarify that we actually wasn't just like a, like a, a holiday romance that we both kind of wanted a bit more out of this. But no one was really wedding, willing to admit it just yet. You know, you got to hold on to that until you're, re until you're ready to play that card, you know? But I liked her enough that I was like, oh, I really want to, I want to go visit her in the States and I wanted another crack at, you know, at having more time with her, you know? And that's like four months away at that point. Yeah, yeah. So then we did the... So then I quickly arranged with my friend to go visit her in Chicago. And um, so then I'd actually had a quite a nice time with her. Like she, you know, she was an older kind of, you know, not quite my age, kind of an older person than I was at the time. And so she was sort of was sort of looking out for me in a way, she, you know, and um, she was actually scary. instrumental in me getting the job at the backpacking company because I knew her through another friend and she shared the office space for the backpacking company and so she knew I built furniture and that's how I got the job building furniture for the backpacking company through her so she was sort of watching out for me a little bit that way so I uh, so I knew she'd be okay with me visiting her you know in Chicago and uh, so I stayed with her for like for well, like a week or so and over Christmas and stuff and then went up to the Carolyn got to the job for back no no this no. is this girl Laura my friend oh, Laura your friend oh I see who lived yeah. to came to America to visit two women oh. the friend in Chicago yeah. And then me and Milwaukee. A love interest person. Very nice person, but not a love interest yeah. person, yeah. you know. Yeah. You know, and um, but Carolyn didn't realize this, of course, at the time. This. So she thought, you know, I'm working two angles, you know. <laughs> if the first one doesn't work, the second, yeah. Yeah, the backup. Why not? <laughs> so, so anyway, so then he came up to Milwaukee and uh, yes, we got along well. Nice. Yeah, and we spent New Year's Eve together. It was always yeah, it was fun. great. And this was like Y2K, you know, like this is when Y2K was happening. So everyone was expecting the, you know, the, the, the information world, world to collapse because of the, the, the lack of digits on clocks, you know? Oh. Uh, that was a thing for 99 going into 2000s because like all these like timers couldn't go past the year. I slightly that. remember, I was very young, but I yeah. slightly yeah. remember that. So there was all these predictions that like there was going to be nuclear meltdowns and, and you know, trains would start like power spinning off the tracks and like power stations would explode. And, you know, everyone thought this was going to be a problem. Of course, nothing happened nothing at happened. all, you know, except a lot of, a lot of software companies made money creating fake patches for clocks, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but that was about it. Yeah. Uh, so there was this kind of excitement in the air as well as the turn of his... I was like, well, if the world's going to go to hell tonight, yeah. I'm glad I'm with you. Uh, so then um, what happened after? Did, did, uh, did you just decide to move to the States or like how did you guys communicate no, to each other? We just sort of like decided that we just really liked each other and then... Um, we sort of planned to visit each other. So it was a long distance relationship for some yeah. time. So here's, here's, this is the interesting numbers. I did the math. 
We decided to get married after spending 17 physical days with each other. And we actually got married after spending three months with each other over a two-year period. Oh, wow. Yeah. So honestly, it's like, you know, they always say like long-distance relationships are tough. But also, it's a way to kind of jumpstart the whole thing. Because, like, if you're just going to put it out there, put it out there. Like, you know, we made an effort to, like, you know, phone each other, email each other, make packages for each other. You know, all those, like, kind of special things. And if you're not in it, you'll know quickly, you know, and it won't last. But if you are in, in on it, you know, you're committed to it, it can go really, really well, you know. And so... Yeah, so Phil decides to move to America after knowing me for, like, less than three months. I had, since this is all in the midst of my traveling days, I had found a job, a real job again, because I'd been, like, about 18 months out of work and bopping around the world. And and so I had gotten moved to Madison, Wisconsin, and so I had my own place. And so he's like, I'm moving to America to move into this girl's apartment, and and we're going to start a life, you know? So, uh, at that point, what job were you in? I worked for um, a place called the Wisconsin Medical Society. That was like kind of the um, arm of the American Medical Society, American Medical Association, I should say, in Wisconsin. It was great. And it was a, it was a health education-related job. So, remember going back to the... Yeah. I wanted to help people learn about health-related topics. And it was a public health campaign to teach people about the importance of not overusing antibiotics, not taking them when they're not needed, because right. that contributes to antibiotic resistance. So um, then I eventually became the program manager for the statewide initiative of, of that whole project. Wow. So, yeah. he, so he moved uh, to your place, and then you guys um, uh, decided to you know, marry. Where does the, the, the business come the business- the business is about five years later. Five years later? Yeah. So we had, like, you know, a good chunk of it. Phil went to uh, a college. Yeah. So I got, like, a degree then in, um, like, recording and music technology. Because I had this background in, in recording and radio and stuff in Ireland, and I was sort of looking for, well, what can I do in this next leg of life now that I'm in this other country? And in Dublin, it was easy for me to get kind of work in that world because I knew everybody and I had an established record uh, but over here nobody knew me and I didn't have any real formal education in that, that realm and that was kind of what I wanted to do here and uh, so I ended up doing this like kind of associate's degree in, in Wisconsin uh, which was kind of great actually I met all these cool people it was a really good like introduction to US culture and it was a nice way to do it and I got you know you know better education as well uh, well actually I kind of knew almost everything already so it was sort of funny because I, I often ended up like telling the instructors they were wrong, you know, and, like, <laughs> and stuff, you know. But it was, it was, it was nice to sort of, you know, really like tease that out in a sort of a formal way and like fill in some gaps that I didn't have. And um, so then uh, I ended up working for a studio in in uh, in Madison for a while, and then I ended up setting up my own recording studio in our house that we, you know, bought a couple of years after uh, I moved there. And um, so I was quite handy. So a lot of my time was working on her house, sort of putting in sweat equity. And Carolyn had more of a full-time job. So I was doing this like part-time studio thing, working on the home and making the home better. And then 
in the midst of all this, you know, a lot of people knew I was Irish and I had this background in tourism and they were thinking about going to Ireland and they just wanted a few pointers, you know. So this was like constant, constant. near constant thing where people were asking me, where should I go in Ireland? What should I do in Ireland? Where should I go? And all this and stuff. Then, and you would also be like, wouldn't it be fun if we took like a bunch of our friends? Because he still had his bus driver's license mm -hmm. in Ireland. And it's like, oh, what if, you know, I could like, you know, put it together a little route of like more of these off the beaten track places, you know, you know, those really hidden gems of Ireland where people don't usually go, yeah. you know, and we could take a bunch of our, bunch of our friends that we've made in Madison and we could take them all over. And then wouldn't that be really fun to do? Yeah. And between like that and people keep asking him for like travel suggestions, it was like October of 2006, we were driving back from a little weekend away and. We kind of like you know, that. That's a like this idea of taking people to off the beaten track places yeah. in smaller groups, like say fourteen to fifteen people, not like a giant busload of people, but a res kind of a smaller group that wouldn't like totally inundate a local community, but just just be the right amount of influx. We thought this is actually a business that we could set up, and so we decided to call it Inroads Ireland Tours Off the Beaten Track. Wow! And then the whole idea being very different. Tour because like you know, tour companies typically had giant buses. They had these very set routes in Ireland, and everyone goes to the same places. They stay in all the same towns. Mm -hmm. It's kind yeah. of a numbers game, you know. It's like the more people you can fit on a bus, the better. And you don't want too many sites. You just want a few key sites that spark enough interest for people to book a trip. But it's all about pack them in, you know, pack them in. Get them in quickly around these things and then get them out and extract as much money as you can along the way. And, and we wanted to set up a totally different business model. Yeah, we wanted something that people would like genuinely have an amazing experience and that the experience would be so compelling that they would want to return and they would really want to share this with their, their friends and family. And, and they would feel like they'd have like this insider taste of, of Irish culture, you know, like really talk with people that are from that smaller town, hear, hear local Irish people's stories, you know, eat some more local food. Um, and it was important for me too, like being, being Irish that, you know, I brought people to the places that I love in a respectful way to the local people because quite often what would happen is, you know, these really larger bus companies or tour companies would come in and they would just like destroy these small little towns. Like, you know, you'd have like, a hundred people would just show up in this little bar instantaneously and you know they're not equipped to deal with that many people and you know um, it would also sort of change the dynamic of small towns when they became popular on tourist routes you know people local people didn't feel welcome in their own town anymore and it, all the food and the bar started to carry cater to just tourists and you know they just changed the look and the feel of the place and they lost what was actually authentic about them and they started to have this sort of like disnified version of Ireland and it was kind of like it was like business people presenting a version of Ireland that was what Americans thought Ireland was, but wasn't what Ireland actually was. So they were selling them what they expected rather than and what, what was, was really there. And I wasn't interested in that. I wanted to show them what was really there because it was just way better. And I also didn't want these local people being annoyed. I wanted the local people to be happy and see these people and to be able to share what was great about their town. And that, because I figured that's like 
everyone wins you know everyone wins in that scenario like i feel better about doing it a lot of people make money they don't feel like they're selling out or losing their own culture and then the people doing the tours get a real genuinely fulfilling and realistic experience of the country that they want to learn about you know and it, it really worked didn't it like people loved them you know wow. yeah, yeah. You used to take a group of like no more than 14? Yeah, like 14, 15 people. Like that was the most, yep. And how did you organize? Well, we like how did you get together people? What marketing techniques? Yeah. So Phil, Phil was our, you know, local Irish expert. So he would go over for like, you know, a couple months or longer to do all the research. To like really find out. Because so much about a tour experience is that it's the right mixture of sites. And you don't want to have like 20 churches. Because you know, people, otherwise, you just like, I don't care about the 19th church, you know? You want to have a nice representation of things. So Phil was the person that really curated the like perfect tour experience, what's going to highlight the best of an area, what's the right amount of time between places, beautiful overnight accommodation. So that was all yay to Phil. Yeah. So he was a more technical expert. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was yeah. like kind of yeah. designing, designing the routes and making sure they worked you know and um and being very systematic about it you know so i was kind of using my experience from being like a recording engineer like in which is very precise and systematic and you have to follow things in certain ways and i was sort of applying that sort of um attitude to tour design in terms of logistics the distance between places and if i go this way i get a better view and it adds in this much time but it's worth it because the view is better and so we never went like straight line points to anything we always drove the scenic route because there was more history there was more stories i could tell there was better views there was more opportunity for people to stop and get out and take pictures and you know one of our philosophies was that you could stop any time mm -hmm. so it wasn't like we have to be at this place at this time it was like all our stops were you know changeable so we could get there an hour later or an hour earlier so if we came across a beautiful beach we'd just get out and spend time at the beach and everyone would enjoy the day and if it was raining we might take a different route and do something else so but you had to have sort of it all pre-planned so you knew those variabilities ahead of time so that you could sort of interchange them and make the day work as a whole so i literally spent months and months driving around um, in a car and uh you know i would drive all day long sometimes till 12 or 1 at night and i brought my sleeping bag and food and i would sleep in the car and i would wake up on a beach sure in the mountain and then i would keep driving the next day and i would stop at all these accoms like we never went somewhere that i didn't stay in yeah because at that time you you didn't have google maps yeah to tell you like oh, oh. these are the 10 places yeah. you can go Right, you had to just, it boots on the ground, you had to do it yourself. And Ireland is notoriously hard to find directions in, because like all the, the signage is terrible, and kids like to turn the signs around and swap them for fun. And then there are all these like country roads that don't have signs, you know, and there's this myriad of connecting old laneways oh and stuff. So it's a labyrinth when you get in, outside the cities, it's just this crazy, yeah. crazy, mazy, labyrinthine sort of uh, network. This, this is... A fantastic business idea yet I mean I mean definitely required more research from yeah. your end yeah. but this is a very very custom yet like local oriented um, tour guide right because you're not you're not just like 
giving them just superficial. No, yeah. And it really brought together, like, I think, like, why, when you make, like, these decisions, these points in your life Mm -hmm. where things change, like, I am now on a different path. Like, deciding to start the business, again, we hedged our bets. I kept my full-time job so that we didn't, like, totally, you know, put all our money into just the Irish business. I kept my full-time job for four years while we got the other business up and running. So we still had a way to pay the bills and all that kind of thing. And then, um, you know, the business really lent itself to both of our strengths and that Phil being the Irish expert, having worked for years as a tour guide, having his experience in outdoor adventure sports, um, really understanding people and what do they like out of a tour experience. And then my background more with like logistics and like kind of the project management side of things, like having run, you know, grants and big level projects with a variety of players, working at a software company, you know, working as a nurse, working with patients. Um, it really blended those two worlds in an amazing a, way. You know, we weren't afraid of like the internet or computers or, you know, running our business online. Because like one of the things that we had both decided even before the tour, because we'd come up with various ideas of things to do. And, but we both really wanted a business that could be run from anywhere, that it wasn't tied to a specific location. And so, you know, the internet had matured enough to this point where you could really run a business online, you know, and you could be anywhere in the world, conceivably, and take orders and take calls and, you know, and market online, you know, and you really only had to be there when the tours themselves were actually running. You know, that was the only time you actually needed to be tied into a location. And uh, and that was only for a limited time during yeah, the summer. I wanted to ask you for how long uh, did you guys uh, had a tour for? I mean, the whole business or the, how long did the tour last? How long did the tour last? Oh, it was a week. Yeah. And we started off with like one route of Southern Ireland. And then we added a route of Northern Ireland. And then we added a tour of Western Ireland. So there's so we kind of divide the country into three geographic zones that aligned as well culturally. Yeah. And um, and then so we organized the date so that you could actually link all three tours together if you wanted to do a three-week experience or if you just wanted to do two weeks. or Because yeah. we really wanted to appeal to people's level of flexibility, their independent nature. Our tours were definitely designed for a more uh, free-spirited traveler. So it was, a, in overall, it was a three-week tour, one week for North, one week for West, and one week for South, right? Right, right. Uh, so, but you were also doing your full-time job or at that point? Yeah. Right. I was in America. Yeah. Yeah. She was doing a lot of, like, the calls and the follow-up emails and making sure that... Confirming all the people each day. Confirming all the details are correct. Making sure the hotels are the right bookings and, you know, that all the numbers match and that type of stuff. Doing the accounting, you know, doing search engine optimization, doing, you know, content management, all that stuff. You know, keeping things up to date when we change things. And we had sort of of planned to have three tours right from the start. And we started out with one that sort of covered a little bit of everything. And then that pulled away and then we added a northern tour which concentrated just on that and then we had enough people we added in the third tour 
So that concentrated more on that area and those other two tiers pulled away. So they became more concentrated on their own zones and you could add more stuff into those areas. So you're constantly having to, re every year, you're reevaluating what worked, what didn't work on the tour this year. Yeah. Maybe a site isn't as good as it once was or an accommodation has gone downhill. So yeah. it's constant quality assurance. I mean, like it's that. huge. We had, because I wanted to make them kind of a more sustainable model, I didn't want local people to be become jaded mm -hmm. and I also didn't want sites becoming too popular like a lot of sites I took people to nobody else took anyone there they were basically undiscovered places for people outside of the country anyway but I also didn't want them becoming discovered so I would only do them for a season or two and now I find a different one you know and I would just leave it alone for a few years and then I might come back to it at some point. That's a really good strategy. You know because you, know, you know you don't want things being ruined by tourism either you know uh, because you want you want people to see that thing but you don't want them to, to be the undoing of it you know which is happens to so much stuff when tourism takes too big of a hold it becomes a big business it becomes a money thing it becomes less about the experience it becomes more about extracting as much money in a short amount of time and you know the people that live in that area become less and less relevant then as well you know so we really wanted it to to keep it a sustainable model you know that didn't do those things you know well, and you had asked earlier about marketing, which I had kind of jumped over for a second, so I'll come back to that. Yeah. Um, so like Phil had mentioned, that we wanted to set up so that it was virtual. It could be run from anywhere. And um, so we had to really make our web presence, that's like our number one marketing tool, was making sure we had a really great website and that it was um, helped you learn all the information you need to know about traveling to Ireland. And this was when? 2007 was the first year. Wow, you were already thinking of like... Yeah, and like, you know, everything's two clicks away. Yeah. You know, don't have this website that's a convoluted mess. Make it a simple, easy to navigate website. Make the booking process super easy. You know, work with your partners, yeah. your, you know, background stuff. We didn't want people to have to go through another third-party site in order to make a booking. We wanted to establish trust on our page and so they would trust us and then book through the page and not feel like they had to do this extra convoluted steps. Yeah, create a login and all that. Like, no, you don't have to do any of that. So we kind of took our own, like, you know, preferences about how we want the travel experience to be and applied that to the website. And um, so the website was really, really big. And then we, like, we tried to do our own, like, search engine optimization and quickly in Google AdWords, and we quickly realized this is not our forte we need to hire this out. So that's another, I think a big thing about like running your own business is figure out what you're good at and what you're not. And what you're not good at, if you can pay someone to do it and they're going to do it right, do that. Because mm -hmm. it'll be, you'll, you'll yeah. reap your benefits tenfold. Yeah, because us doing something badly is, is, is way more harmful to, your co to our company than hiring someone to do it well, even though it costs more money. More money. It might be some, a little hurt up front, yeah. but your long-term benefits can be worth it. And another example of that so in terms of marketing, website was really big, social media, um, you know, we hired a public relations person to really make our Facebook and Twitter presence, and this is kind of pre-Instagram. Exactly, it's like oh. 2007, 2008, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty all, sure not a lot of people must be. No, it's all, it's all newer stuff, but um, we hired someone to say, help us amp up our game, help us learn how to be better marketing people on these platforms. So we hired them for a year. And then with the intent that you're going to teach us. 
and then we did our own thing. We we took it over from there. That's so smart. Yeah. Um, but then we ended up like sort of passing it off again because it's just like it's too much to keep up with because it's constantly changing and it's yeah. like it's you can spend so much time on social well, media. At least you learned and you learned uh, like how it works so that you can yeah. better function yeah. Yeah. Right. in yeah. your and business. Yeah, there. we got the foundation, but we didn't need to know the implementation. Like, and then we were fine with just having someone who knew what they did just go out and do it because it, it just sucks so much of your time otherwise you know yeah uh. so and then we also tried to you know reach out and that's the thing about what say trying to find people in theory a global audience to book these trips to go to ireland mm-hmm. and, and granted our tours were english speaking so primarily our customers were from america canada um australia new zealand mm-hmm. we didn't put a lot of money into europe like in i mean lots of germans and dutch and i'm sure italians and spanish and french travel to Ireland, but we decided to focus on Canada, United States, Australia, New Zealand, mm-hmm. and you know, do your uh, Google AdWords and search engine stuff targeted towards those markets. But then locally within the United States, um, we would do public events. You know, we'd go to Irish fairs. There's a really big one in Milwaukee called Milwaukee Irish Fest, actually the largest, largest like North American Irish festival. And it's in this, along Lake Michigan every year in August. It's a really great festival. Um, we did a bunch of festivals. We did, you know, radio. We were on like public radio. We did interview slots. We did television. We wrote articles. We wrote like papers. newspaper articles. So you have some market. I mean, whatever the marketing strategy is at that period in time, you have to kind of take advantage of it. Now, obviously, in now in the early 2020s, marketing is entirely different. Really? I mean, websites are are. Yeah. Same, but print was still a thing like that. Yeah, back like in the day, yeah. but now print is, you know, unfortunately a little bit dead. Um, so yeah, you always have to kind of be constantly reevaluating. Like all the time we ran the business, you're constantly looking at: Do we need to be part of this? Do we not need to be part of this like social platform? Because you just don't want to jump on something because it's cool. Yeah. You want to do it because it's actually going to meet the needs of your audience. Because yeah, right? things cost money, and you don't have an endless pot of money to do your marketing with. You know, so you have to make smart and strategic decisions about how to spend your marketing dollars. So, and I've, um, as far as like, one thing that I'm seeing uh, that you did really well, and uh, I think I've seen a lot of successful businesses do is be very, very focused uh, in whatever, uh, you know, uh, product they have or strategy they have. And I think that's what you did. Like you focus on just English speaking countries, you focus on like marketing, like even marketing, you knew like Facebook and Twitter. You you knew exactly what where exact where to market and. Mm. You know, another that you bring bring up a good point because people would constantly ask us, "Why don't you expand to other countries?" That was the big question. Like, I want to do this exact same style of tour, but I want to do this in like Scotland or Wales or France or Spain or Iceland, and it's like, yes, we could have, but second half of that is we need to find that local expert. I mean, the whole reason our niche is here is because we have Phil, this awesome Irish expert. We would need to find all these off-the-beaten track places in Spain or France or Iceland or whatever, which is months of research and then months you know, of marketing. Mm-hmm. And there's, if you want to spread yourself out that way, you can, but then you're probably going to need to increase your cost in terms of employees. Mm-hmm. You know, and how much work do we want to take on? Yeah. And so we just said, we said, no, we're, we're happy with running It wasn't Ireland. something that we were totally against, though, because we did, like, we, we kept that open. Like, it was definitely something that we could go into at some point. But I think, like, 
it would have been something that we had somebody else develop you know rather than ourselves you know and so we would have brought it in as a sort of like okay we, we, we want this is what we do in Ireland we found you this awesome expert of this other region and we really want you to sort of take this model and sort of apply this here and we have all this infrastructure the website can be just expanded to include you the marketing can be expanded to include you and you know we would have done it that way you know uh, and then incrementally added different countries but also we, we got to the point you know being like who we are we also got to a point where we're like you know we kind of want to do something else you know or not do anything at all and we like traveling ourselves and so the, the tourist sort of uh months tie you up a lot and but that's also the time that we want to travel you know and we can't because now we're doing this for other people yeah. and so we you know you know ended up sort of like batting around the ideas of eventually like you know selling it or trying to have somebody else run it or that started to come up towards the end when was when was this like so i know you started your business in 2007 right that was the first year and we ran the tours would run between may and september only only between the May and yeah, september yeah because that's the nicest time of year to be in ireland and all the sites were open because a lot of these off the beaten track sites weren't open in spring or the fall or the winter yeah. because again that's the, the the pro and the con of taking people to more unique sites or smaller towns some b&b's closed over the winter because they don't have the numbers to stay open yeah. you know those little fun experiences you're just not going to have like uh, and like even just like like a lot of the sites you know are waterlogged at winter time you know because mm-hmm. ireland's a rainy country and you know a lot of these places are actually really only accessible in the summer when it just has been less rain and even then they can be still muddy you know yeah, and true. you really just like you can't have like a bunch of people getting off a bus and trunching through like a foot deep of mud yeah. to get up this hill to see this ancient thing you know they're all going to be pretty unhappy if, if you have to do that you know yeah. but that's good that you know you guys just have to uh, run the business for these few months may yeah. to september mm-hmm. uh although you lost your summer but. well that's what that's what yeah that's what phil's alluding to that you know for like so you know we sold the business in 2019 so whatever that was which is actually like four, 14 years of tours something like that yeah 14 15 yeah. um It's like, yeah, we had no summer. I mean, just like, oh, poor you. But, you know, after a while, just like anything else in life, sometimes you just are ready to make a change and, and change the pattern in your own world. So you sold this business, uh, right, 2019. How was the feeling? What, what, what was, you know, what was, what were you going through and who did you sell it to? Well, we um, sold to a really great couple that live in Washington, D.C., oh, okay. of all things. And, um, and the feeling was just... Really, kind of happiness like because yeah. I you knew it was in really good hands yeah we felt like we were passing it on to someone who really wanted to give it a good go and that they you know they had the necessary skills that would take them there the right personality as well to do this really excited yeah and we had like done a lot to like make it an easy transition like I had really like we'd gotten some like better guides more recently and we'd really concentrated on getting them trained up to a level that was even higher than we needed you know like i suppose you know so that um they would become her irish experts or their irish experts you know um so that you know because 
you know, a lot of up, up for many years, the, the tour company was largely reliant on me, and I didn't want that. I wanted it to be kind of self-reliant, and so, you know, years leading up to that, I'd been sort of becoming less involved and using more other guides and making the tours a bit more set, so they wouldn't change as much. Or, you know, we had more set routes that we could plug and play and move around. But we weren't completely redesigning them every single year, and uh, you know we were getting more established accommodations. They had known us better, you know, better long-term things. So it was a much easier model to pass off to someone at the end. So we were quite happy that we'd gotten to that point where someone really just had to spend a little bit of time, go through a bit of a steep learning curve, but it was very doable within say a year or so, and they could be up and running. And running the business almost as well as we were, yeah. and then hopefully with their energy and new ideas, they would take it places that we hadn't. And yeah. um, so that—that's kind of what we got, I think, at the end. Totally. You know. Awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So now, so you sold the business 2019. Uh, take me to the present. What What do you guys do now? Um, well, that's interesting because we sold the business and then COVID hit. Yeah. So <laughs> we had had like you know, for the first dance. I guess my first thought to answer your question is we had no plans because we'd just been working so hard for so long we didn't want to have anything to do we just wanted like to just sleep in and just relax and be able to plan trips without being worried about internet connections and you know daily checking emails and what what kind of work do i need to do even though technically i'm on vacation but just you know not having that kind of sitting in the back of your head anymore was just going to feel like oh that'll just be like oh yeah. a different level of relaxation you know because even when you run your own business you're never away from it yeah. it's always with you it's 24 hours even in your sleep yeah so th so just having that like just like ah you know we can just like enjoy so covid hit and um which was kind of great because you were already prepared for yeah. that right? kind of yeah well we were ready to do nothing and so now we were forced to do nothing, to do nothing. which was kind of great for us because it was like we weren't tempted to go off. Because, you know, like you suddenly have all this freedom and you're like, oh, we'll do all this stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. And we couldn't do it because of COVID. And I actually think that for both of us, that was kind of a great thing because it, you know, we kind of had forced relaxation, you know. Um, I wanted to ask... Uh, yeah. Because I know that you you uh, did your degree in recording engineering, yeah. right? And you you were like a full time uh, employee uh, when you started the business. But did you did you guys still kept your work? Oh. Yeah, you gave up after about three years. Three years. And Four. then I kept my Four studio years. going. Um, so when I came back from tours in Ireland, I would still do recording projects periodically every now and then. Right up until we left Wisconsin, I was still doing recordings so after four years carolyn uh, you um were fully focused on the business right yeah so the you know the big economic recession of 2008 and 9 when the like the whole mortgage market crashed out and all that um we'd had our first year of tours in 07 we had people booked up for 08 so we were and we had done really well we doubled our sales we thought we were rock stars yeah. and then the recession hits and then 09 we were back to 07 numbers so we're like we, we we still got people booking things which is good and then 10, in 2010, we were pre-booked up for that summer already. And so we're like, we survived one of the, you know, once in a century recessions or whatever. This is, let's, let's just do it. Let's rip the Band-Aid off. And, and I quit the full-time job and 
you know, buy your own health care insurance and all that stuff. That's fine. That's fine. You, know. you know. That's that's see, that's one more thing that I'm I'm learning from people who have like long term business. They like they also start with something like part time, but they don't just like uh, give up their full time gig. Uh, they do it for some some years or some yeah. some time mm-hmm. until they know that this is working and then jump to. Yeah. Do you think that that's that that's that's a, uh, that's the way she sh- everybody should? I don't know. I think it depends how much money you have too. I mean, if you have some like financing you, you know. Or you, you I think it's probably gonna be different as well for every business, you know, because yeah. some businesses are probably like, yeah, I can jump right into that. Because, you know, there may be established business models and you have facts and stats that support you doing it. Yeah. Um, whereas it was a very unknown. We were, we were doing a different style of tourism than anyone else was doing at the time. So we were kind of breaking new ground, really. And um, so it was sort of important to sort of test it a bit. You know, is it viable or not? You know, like we have great ideas, but really, you know, neither one of us has run a business before you know so the people who are like uh, you know interested like entrepreneurs or people who are like you know have a really interesting idea yeah. and they want to execute what yeah. what do you advise well, them like, yeah well I, I would say like well you know it depends on how financially capable you are i mean if, if you if you have if you're well healed and you know that you can take a loss a potential loss then go do it because like being full-time right from beginning will pay off big time later because it means you can do so much more early on whereas when you're spread between different things you can only put so much in you can only put so much money in too you know so you have to kind of make the best of what you have Uh, but that does make you very resourceful you know as well so you you do learn things from that but it's probably I guess if you're not well healed taking a more conservative approach of like having some other income coming in while you do it is 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 a good safety net or at least don't give up on what you've done like you know don't totally burn that bridge like make sure you can get back into something quite easily if it doesn't work oh i was gonna say too it's like i always kind of think about when people have like business ideas i i tend to think of like so what okay whatever your idea is First of all, do your research. Does this already exist out there? What are your competitors like? And what is going to make your particular version of this different from everybody else? What's going to what's going to say to the consumer, pick this product when there's five to choose from, I'm going to choose this one. What's going to set you apart? And really think about that. Cuz otherwise you could be fighting an uphill battle in terms of just competing against all the other bigger players in town. Yeah. You know, so it's like your classic inventor kind of like you know paradigm of like find the need fill a need you know so establish something that is not being met maybe in an already established market but there's still gaps and things that need to be fulfilled for people and that's kind of what we did yeah there was not a small group off the beaten track tour experience before ours in ireland yeah there was some things but they weren't really what we were doing you know uh, yeah and plus you you had a very systematic approach yeah. of handling it and it was very organized yeah. from the start and yeah. i think that might be you know like people don't have to think about it much there were some like smaller groups but they're just sort of stripped down versions of larger tours just with lower numbers and more budget oriented but they weren't really different other than that you know whereas ours was like this quality experience it was immersive it was highly flexible um you know it was sustainable it was like 
it was mobile for us in terms that we could be anywhere in the world and run it. And we were also pushing a version of Ireland that people had never heard of. You know, we were pushing like, not this old 1800s old Irish guys roaming around on donkeys, you know, with little stone cottages that people, when they're drunk all the time, you know, that's, that's what people were sold on. And we weren't selling that at all. We were selling the rich culture, the, the language, the, the traditions, the modern Ireland, as well as the old Ireland. And what's going on now? And you're really getting to meet real Irish people. And we really tried to set it up. We would, um, to say like, you know, look at that feeling you have when you're driving around a country in a car and you have that feeling of freedom and you're exploring and there's like this random thing that you happen to come upon you can stop when you want stop in a smaller town grab a coffee a scone whatever that was our tour experience it's that feeling you know absolutely yeah i mean i'm getting more into traveling but that's what i want too it's yeah. like i want that feeling of like you know what I, this is my like as if this is my tour it's not just some tour bus yeah. as if I can stop here I like this I want to explore what they're doing there like what are they making there you know yeah. it's it's that yeah that's yeah. customized uh, you know um, experience yeah. yeah and we would do that like if you just were, were driving somewhere and you were like what's that I want to go look at that we would go look at it okay. you know we would stop and we'd all get out and look at it and like yeah. We never had real hard times for stuff. Like I would get out and look at stuff, but I, I never said like, let's be back in five minutes. We didn't do that. We just like organically ended up back at the bus when everyone was done and it worked really well. And people just sort of stopped looking at their watches yeah. and stopped trying to like, you know. It's interesting, you, right, gi you yeah. give them a little bit more freedom yeah. and they will feel um, yeah. satisfied and, yeah. and happy with the experience, right? Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, um, and this goes back to what we were talking about, giving advice to the people who have that uh, idea, uh, right? So you, you said that um, if you if you have financial, if you're financially capable, then yes, do more full-time because you can invest more from the start on yeah. and then build on it and then just, uh, you know, be be, uh, be more financially secure with your idea yeah. faster. Yeah. But what about the people who are actually doing, um, who are actually have a full-time uh, job and they are also uh, pursuing their idea uh, in, yeah. in the in the part-time like how do they keep motivated to mm. keep doing their uh, you know pursuing their idea because you know at times it can get uh, uh, yeah. hard or challenging that's where you know you you have to have like a, a model or an idea that really appeals to you as a person or really capitalizes on your own unique skills uh, so you've either got to love it or be really good at it you know um, because Otherwise, you're just gonna like burn out. And like loving it is is great because you're motivated. You're doing something you like doing. If you're good at something, you can be very efficient and you know how to do it. You're not like wasting time learning stuff. You're you're just good at that thing and you're just doing it well enough that it's not causing you problems. You know, mm -hmm. and so being either one of those or a combination thereof is is probably your best bet like so don't like decide that i'm gonna do this thing that i'm completely unskilled in and don't really know much about but it sounds like it might be fun you know don't do that like find something that like you know i'm really good at coding and i really think if i work in the evening on this app that i have an idea for i can really make a go of this or you know 
I'm an incredible basket weaver and I'm so good at this that I can churn out awesome baskets in the evening time efficiently and I can get it to a point where I can build up enough clientele that I can eventually give up my day job and then start hiring other people to do this. You know, so you either got to love it or be good at it. I think they're the, the two variables or as I say a mix thereof. And like in our case, I both loved touring around Ireland and I was also really good at it. And Carolyn loved touring around Ireland and was also really good at planning and administration. So we had like between the two of us had sort of both those things, you know, for us. And so Carolyn was super efficient at administration and very detail oriented. And so after her work day and her regular job, she could do a lot of that stuff very quickly and very efficiently and still kind of have life after work. And then obviously I, you know, was in Ireland working sort of full-time when I was there doing all that stuff. And But I was working like 20-hour days when I was there, you know. And so, you know, because I had to be up before the day started and I was up right up until the end when everyone was still out and making sure they were okay and having a good experience and so and then in between that I was also catching up on emails communicating things with Carolyn and we had to find time to do that because of time differences because it's like an eight-hour time shift you know and uh, so that that was very challenging so being into it and being good at it really got us through those Awesome. Uh, that's a really good advice. Just do what you love, either really love doing or something that you're really good at that you can uh, yeah. share the skills and like, you know, uh, yeah. make it a service. Yeah. So, okay. I think we should rewind the, the travel uh, business and I think uh, it's definitely some helpful uh, you know advice on that. I wanted to ask Carolyn, um, if you were to, and this is a hard question because I know that you guys have traveled all over the world. Mm. If you were to just pick one place, you know, in the in the whole world, where would you uh, advise people that everybody should go to? Oh, you know what? I, with, I'm not going to, like, overthink this. I'm just going to say Nepal. Nepal? Nepal. Wow, why Nepal? Weird. Um, I was going to say Nepal, too. No. Yeah, I got it first. Yeah. Um, I, uh, Iceland also really ran through my head. Yeah. And I, I, my, my brain went to what is different and what is maybe a different a cultural experience that will really kind of improve your outlook on the world. And I feel like Nepal was really that kind of place. It was really a beautiful place, beautiful people, great food, great culture, um, very peaceful. Yeah, but just like, I think like Nepal, like for me, had this like, amazing mix of just staggeringly beautiful natural landscape and just very interesting kind of layout of towns and then you know just ancient architecture sort of belief systems and food and just their cultural ways are very nice to be around you know it felt very calming and but also busy and frenetic at the same time and somehow they managed to figure this out and i'm sure there's there's issues in nepal which are, it can be very apparent when you're there as well you know but it's it's it has a sort of a magical quality to it in, in a sense you know and it's um it's very um appealing you know that that mix of culture and natural beauty 
Um, did you guys go to the the Mount Everest? No, but we did a flight around Mount Everest. Yeah. We're actually out to it and back. So, um, yeah, it's like it's a flight you get on like at, you know, 7 in the morning and they only seat people on the window side of the plane. Oh, wow. And so it's, it's literally a flight to go and see Everest and then come back. Yeah. So, no, we did not go to, we did not hike to Bay Camp. We hiked in the Annapurna's foothills mm-hmm. um, instead. We did like a four-day through hike um, in that area. Mm-hmm. So, wow. yeah, it's, it was great. I always find, like, if I was going to offer a bit of travel advice, is don't overstretch yourself in a country don't try to do every single thing that that place has to offer. I mean, I mean, grant how big our country your country is. I mean, it could be a Caribbean island, and maybe that's easy to do. But you know, like, you know, like say with Ireland, um, it's actually about the same size geographically as Indiana. But um, but you know, it's it's a small country. The roads are are slower. Instead of like trying to see the whole country in a week, like get yourself into one zone and one in one section yeah. and enjoy it, and you'll have you'll have such a much more pleasurable time because yeah. um, so much of I think any country is the people it's the yeah. culture it's the traditions it's what makes that country tick I was gonna say that like you know like you were saying the people is, is largely a big part of the experience uh, you know but you know for advice is like pick a beautiful part and then concentrate on the people you know wow. Because if you get that beauty with the people, because the people are the culture, you know, beauty is sort of independent of culture. Natural beauty is just natural beauty, and you know, but the culture and the people are what make a place different, you know. So pick a beautiful area and then get to know the people and put yourself in experiences where you meet people, like go out to bars, go to restaurants. Do little local walking tours with people. Go to those theater shows or music things or markets and supermarkets are amazing they fun are amazing. when you travel. You know, because you learn so much by going to a local grocery store. You know, what kind of food do they have? How do people dress in this area? What are they cooking that night? You know, what's that weird fruit thing? You know, and uh, what what kind of stuff do they drink here? And uh, you know. You kind of get everyone when you go to a supermarket, don't you? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a it's like a free insider's guide to the local culture. Wow, that's a really good advice. Wow, uh, awesome. So I think uh, we are about at this point where we're just uh, wrapping up the whole conversation. Uh, I just wanted to ask one last question. Um, if you were to uh, give a career advice uh, to people who are like either switching the careers or like starting a new career. Or like, uh, if you were to go back and like be in your twenties, what advice would you give uh, to people? Let's start with Carolyn. I would say, of course, like you said, I have you know the wisdom of looking back now. But you know, like like listen to all those niggles that you have going on. You know, there's certain things like, oh, I what what you do like about say your current job that you have or you don't. Listen to that because that's real. I mean, that's your gut talking. You know. And then, like, you know, you're going to see some patterns. I mean, maybe, like, write them down. Like, what is this, what is this consistently bother you about this job? Or what do you consistently really like? Or what do you find yourself liking to do in your, in your spare time? And could you make money maybe doing what you really love to do in your spare time? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so I'd say, like, you know, it sounds a little trite, but listen to your gut. Being happy at the end of the day is more important than having a giant bucket of money. Yeah. You know? Also, the, I would say, like, in a very pragmatic fashion, you know, definitely plan on happiness. 
because that's where that's everyone's ultimate goal is to be happy and money is just a means to achieve happiness it's just one of many tools that you can use at your disposal but it's a very important tool you know because in in you know western civilization money dictates so much and so if you can really get a plan where you start saving and investing money earlier on even if it's just small amounts just start doing it start investing start getting funds or mutual funds or retirement stuff going get your savings up don't take it out you know let it grow because the bigger it gets the more it'll grow on its own and so that money can then be used to invest into your idea or your switch that you want to do later and then you have a means to switch and you're also establishing a buffer so just start saving and investing and becoming smart with how you you spend your money and uh, you know you don't need to be like super thrifty like have experiences now because you're living right now and don't put things off that you can do now like go out to that nice dinner you know <laughs> uh, but you know don't buy stupid things like don't rush out and buy a Ferrari when you can you know you can buy like a Honda Accord or something you know like <laughs> it's gonna get you to the same end point you know and like you know that, be smart yeah try and be smarter with your financial choices because being smart with your own personal finances translates well to smart choices for businesses down the road it's the same mindset you know and you know just thinking and learning of different ways and how money is manipulated i think that was really sort of enlightening to both of us as we got more into the business and we learned about tax and just even like how money grows on its own in different ways you know and you reach this point and then it becomes this like self-sustaining thing and like um there's lots of stuff that you can do um, but, but starting that and getting your money growing early and building upon it is is, is going to be crucial to like your success and longevity you know for for any kind of uh any endeavor this is really uh, helpful advice and overall this has been really good conversation uh can you believe that we've been talking for three hours wow yeah, it was awesome uh thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast uh, you're welcome it's really yeah. great fun that's great it's super fun thank you guys for watching the show stay tuned for more episodes take care and ciao